Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. This episode features content from an educational webinar titled Key HIV Studies Influencing My Practice Following AIDS 2022, featuring Dr. Chloe Orkin. Dr. Orkin is a professor of HIV at Queen Mary University of London and a consultant physician and lead for HIV research at Bart's Health NHS Trust at the Royal London Hospital in London, United Kingdom. In this episode, she will discuss data presented at the conference, including on prevention strategies, oral and long-acting therapies for treatment, cure, and COVID-19 in people with HIV. For the full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Orkin has to say about new data from AIDS 2022. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. I am uh, dialing in from Canada, a very beautiful part of Canada, and I've seen Wales today, so I'm in a very good mood. I'm going to start with prevention. And the first study I'm going to cover was a really hot topic at the conference, and it was doxycycline uh, post-exposure prophylaxis for STI prevention among MSM and TGW with HIV or receiving PrEP. And what happened is that either MSM and TGW living with HIV or without HIV were given doxycycline 200 milligrams of PEP, uh, and all the alternative was no PEP. So essentially what happened is they had quarterly STI testing for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis at 0, 3, 6, and 9, and 12 months post-intervention. And if we look at their, um, their baseline characteristics, what you can see, it was a predominantly young cohort, around 38, predominantly white, uh, and predominant, 96% uh, were uh, gender-assigned men, and only 4% were gender, gender, uh, transgender women or diverse. Uh, and you can see um, that STIs were pretty frequent uh, over the past couple of months, and there was a median of nine partners. So we're looking at a group, group of people who were at risk. And if we look at the doxycycline PET primary endpoint, uh, if we look at the STI incidence per quarter, firstly for the PrEP cohort, secondly for the PWH cohort, what you see is compared to standard of care, there's a very significant reduction uh, in uh, STIs. It's a really, really significant reduction. Um, and you can see that this is the case um, regardless of whether people had HIV or not. And you can see that this was regardless of infection. Now, uh, you can see that chlamydia and syphilis were significantly reduced, but gonorrhea were, was reduced by around 55%. Uh, and this is different from the French study when gonorrhea wasn't, uh, wasn't reduced as much, but, uh, but there are reasons for that. So we can see like around a 60% reduction uh, in STIs, all STIs with very significant reductions in chlamydia and syphilis and lesser uh, reductions in gonorrhea. When we look at safety, adherence and tetracycline resistance, we can see that there were no grade three AEs, uh, no significant uh, lab abnormalities or serious adverse events with doxycycline. Discontinuation rate was 1.5%. Uh, and based on uh, self-reported adherence, 87% of sexual acts was covered by doxycycline. And we had tetracycline resistance data available for 30% of gonorrhea endpoints. 
And if we look at the tetracycline resistance cases, uh, what we see here uh, is that they were pretty similar uh, to prior to baseline, so not very, very different. So all in all, um, a very good uh, outcome. We do need more data on resistance, but the initial look uh, is looking, it's not looking alarming by any means, it's looking quite uh, reassuring, but amazing uh, responses in terms of doxycycline PEP. So the next study I'm going to move on to is six-monthly PrEP dispensing, um, and this is with HIV self-testing. This is a study done in Kenya. It was adult men and women in serious sporting couples and also single women using PrEP for a month. And what normally happens is they have to go in every, every three months and they have to be tested. So what this study did was it left the standard of care arm as three monthly PrEP plus, plus clinic visits. And then the investigational arms were six monthly PrEP um, plus visits. And then uh, basically they were given six months of PrEP and told to come back in six months instead of three months. And then at home, they could either do an all fluid HIV self-test or a blood-based uh, HIV self-test. So that was basically what happened. And there was a combined analysis for the six monthly PrEP. And, and it is quite difficult for people, particularly uh, for financial reasons to keep attending the hospital. So what we see here in terms of outcomes uh, is that there was non, non the the um, self testing option with six monthly prep was non inferior to the standard of care in terms of those who tested uh, tested positive for HIV uh, for those that refilled the prep and in terms of adherence so that's really really good news um, but interestingly the outcomes in single women uh, there was actually a superiority in terms of adherence to prep so single women found it much easier to adhere to prep. Uh, in this scenario. So it remained non-inferior, but it was superior in terms of adherence. So what we learn here is, as ever, different modalities make a big difference to different people. It's different strokes for different folks. Uh, and for some people, uh, the idea of going in um, really was a problem and this you know, made a huge difference. So um, that takes us to uh, the next study, which is a, pref a pref preference study looking at methods and sociodemographic socio characteristics of surveyed women in Namibia. And there was a discrete choice analysis of an anonymous survey of 1,675 DREAMS participants. Uh, and what was collected was demographics and prep knowledge, attitudes, and practices. Uh, and what you see from the cohort is predominantly uh, people were single with less than secondary education. Uh, and they had, there was some experience of prep so in the 15 to 19 year olds, only about a quarter had experienced PrEP, whereas in the 20 to 24 year olds, almost 50% had experienced PrEP. So what did they think about PrEP? So uh, in terms of this preference study, uh, if we look on the left, uh, there was firstly a, a question around preferred method of PrEP. And 83% were willing to use any option. So that's quite telling. Um, but 61% uh, would have preferred an injectable if they had the choice, 27% oral and 12% vaginal ring. And then when asked what were the defining attributes that affected this preference, it was quite a miscellany of answers. But if we start on the orange on the top left, discrete to parents was important, discrete to sexual partners, less important. Uh, infrequent dosing was important. Uh, no or minimal adverse events was important, 
But the most important thing was that it works. So I think that that's an important uh, consideration. But you can see that for these young women, discretion uh, is a very important driver uh, for for the use of of long-acting PrEP. So the next study I'm going to talk about is the outcomes for transgender women in the HBTN083 trial, comparing long-acting cavitegravir versus daily oral FTC-TDF as PrEP in transgender women and MSM. So I think we all know about this trial. It was long-acting cavitegravir two-monthly versus FTC and TDF. And we know that previously it reported 25 incident infections with cavitegravir and 72 with FTC and TDF. But this analysis is looking at safety, efficacy, and the gender-affirming hormone therapy interaction uh, in the 570 out of more than you know, 4,500 pe- uh, people in the study who were transgender women. And we're looking at the blinded phase. So what you can see is that in terms of the baseline characteristics, things were pretty similar across the groups. Um, and there were no uh, significant uh, adverse events, very similar rates of STIs and similar uh, similar rates of, of HIV acquisition. Um, but if we look very importantly at the gender-affirming hormone therapy, uh, what we see uh, in terms of overall use uh, in terms of the PK on the right, is that you can see that there is no significant effect on the uh, PK of long-acting cabotegravir. Now, interestingly, what you do see in the study is that relatively small proportions of people actually were on gender-affirming uh, uh, hormone therapies at the start, but quite a few people did actually initiate them on the treatment, and that tells us a lot about um, how difficult it is uh, for transgender women uh, to access hormones. So in terms of HPTN084, this is, this is the, the study for, uh, for, for, for women. And what happened in this study is that long-acting injectable cavitegravir versus daily oral FTC TDF uh, for HIV pre- prevention in cisgender women, um, what we saw previously in the blinded phase was an 80, 89% lower risk of HIV infection with long-acting cavitegravir. So with the current analysis, what we're looking at is HIV infections, cumulative HIV incidents, pregnancy incidents, and safety in the 12 months following the unblinding. So what we see here, one year from the unblinding point, is six infections on cavitegravir versus 56 with FTC-TDF. And it doesn't take a genius to understand that this is superior. And interestingly, the hazard ratio has remained identical, so it's still at an 89% reduced risk. Uh, there were three infections identified in the cavitegravir group during the one-year unblinded period, two without recent cab injections, and one with no quantifiable cab during the oral lead-in. So basically, received the first injection at first positive visit and identified 28, late, 28 days later. So. Uh, if we look at the pregnancy outcomes, 132 confirmed pregnancies over 6,400 person years, and the pregnancy incident rate uh, was 3.2 in the unblinded versus 1.3 in the blinded period. And what this tells us is that once women understood that what they were on, they weren't on a blinded therapy, they felt more confident. Um, and you can see um, they, were, they, were, they were sort of less concerned about a, a pregnancy. And you can see that long-acting cabotegravir, there were 63 pregnancies 
and FTCTF69 pregnancies, so very similar numbers, and both of them occurred more in the unblinded phase. So in terms of live births, these were similar pregnancy losses and congenital abnormalities. There was no differences in, 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 in these. So the pregnancy outcomes are consistent with those expected in this population. In terms of take-home points for prevention, doxycycline was found to be safe and effective when taken as post-exposure prophylaxis to prevent STIs in people with HIV and those receiving PrEP. At 12 months, six-month PrEP dispensing plus interim HST was found to be non-inferior standard of uh, PrEP dispensing with significantly higher adherence in single women. And of women surveyed in Namibia, majority preferred long-acting injectable PrEP for its effectiveness, dosing schedule, and and discretion. Data from the TGW and the HPTN-083 study suggest that gender-affirming hormone therapy does not affect the pharmacokinetics of long-acting cavitegravir in transgender women. In the one year since I'm blinding, there have been three additional infections, none of which occurred with on-time dosing. So I'm going to move from there onto all therapies. And the, the first study I'm going to cover is the Bictegravir FTC and TAF versus Dolutegravir FTC TDF for HIV and Hep BV. So this was really, really interesting. So hepatitis B and HIV cohort, both of whom on first-line therapy, so both naive to treatment. And this was a randomized placebo-controlled phase three study. And people had to have HIV greater than 500 copies and HBV greater than 2,000 copies. And they were randomized, as I've said, blinded to receive either Bictegravir FTC and TAF or Dolutegravir FTC and TDF. So you can see co-primary endpoints were for HIV and uh, HEPBV um, undetectable, HBV undetectable. So if we look at baseline characteristics, you can see these are very young people around 30 years of age, very few were women. And you can see that the HIV log was 4.7 and the BDNA log was 8. Um, and you can see the majority of people were hep E antigen positive with raised ALTs. So on the right, what you see is the biological outcomes, firstly for HIV. And you can see that there was non-inferiority between the combinations there. And when you look at the second panel at the bottom, what you see is that uh, Bictegravir, FTC, and TAF uh, was superior to Dolutegravir, FTC, and TDF in terms of the primary endpoint, the co-primary endpoint of getting the HBV DNA undetectable. So that's a very, very important finding. Uh, in terms of other week 848 outcomes, efficacy outcomes, ALT normalization didn't reach statistical significance, but there was a numerical trend towards improvement. Um, in terms of resistance, um, you can see that there was one person on Dolutegravir FTC TDF who developed uh, resistance mutations, but nobody on the Bictegravir arm. In terms of loss of hepatitis B S antigen, you can see that there was a significant difference here in favor of Bictegravir FTC and TAF. And when it comes to seroconversion, zero, you can see that there was a, a favorable outcome for hepatitis B E antigen uh, seroconversion. So that was a really, really good uh, outcomes, so statistically significant differences here and numerically significant differences throughout. Um, so if you look at uh, the simple study uh, at week 144, switching to dolutegravir plus FTC um, versus continued three-drug therapy in patients with biological suppression, we're now looking at three-year data uh, in people uh, who switch to dolutegravir uh, FTC uh, and the difference, there were differences in how 
the monitoring was done. So what we see at three years, there was uh, that Deutsche Gebrecht FTC was non-inferior to continuing uh, therapy. And the majority of people had switched away from integrase inhibitors with 25% from NNRTIs and 6% from PIs. And you can see the non-inferiority very clearly here. Uh, and in terms of weight gain, they also looked at the weight gain. Uh, what you see in the solid lines is male participants and in the dashed line were female participants. And what you see is over week, over 144 weeks, uh, men gained an average of 2.3 kilograms and women 2.6 kilograms with no significant differences between the study treatments and no significant differences in adverse events or quality of life between the treatment arms. In terms of the take-home points for the oral therapies in the Alliance study of people co-infected with HIV, HPV, there was no difference in HRNA, HIV RNA suppression between Bictegravir FTC and TAF and Dolutegravir FTC TDF, but Bictegravir FTC and TAF resulted in significantly more participants achieving HPV DNA suppression at week 48. In the simple study, switching to D2G FTC was non-inferior to continuing three-drug therapy with no significant differences in weight gain at week 144. So the next thing I'm going to talk about was long-acting therapies. Now, there were a couple of studies presented uh, at uh, this meeting regarding uh, long-acting therapies, and I'm going to start with the Carlos study. So the Carlos study is the German real-world uh, study with an uh, implementation study of long-acting uh, cabotegravir-pivirine. And patients and HCP perspectives is the first thing that we're going to be hearing on switching from daily oral therapy to long-acting cabotegravir-pivirine. So it's a non-interventional cohort in Germany. And 236 people with HIV were switched from daily antiretrovirals to cabotegravir-pivirine to monthly between May and December 2021. And what read out of this meeting was the perspectives of people with HIV and the healthcare professionals through surveys which conducted a baseline. So firstly, on the left, we're going to look at patient-reported challenges with daily HIV treatment. And you can see the first challenge was that routine medication was inconvenient. The second thing was that they felt they had to hide the medications from others. Thirdly, other, uh, the medications reminded them of their HIV status. And fourthly, problems remembering to take daily therapy. But actually, I think that these two bottom ones about being reminded and remembering are quite low. And hiding medications is also quite low. It's only about 30%. So what, what were the most common patient-reported concerns about uh, long-acting cabotegravir-pivirine? So from the healthcare provider, so, from, so, so essentially the first thing that they were worried about was um, pain or soreness from the injection, impact of, on HIV, RNA, and CD4 counts, adverse events from the injection, scheduling travel or holiday, or no worries about the injection. So actually a third of people had no worries about the injection, which I think is quite impressive. But the most, the biggest worry from people was actually pain and soreness, and then of course, an impact on the viral load and CD4 count. Scheduling holidays was less of a concern. So in terms of perspectives on switching from daily oral treatment to long-acting treatment, healthcare providers noted that the, the main wish from their perspective uh, in terms of starting, the, the main reason that they switched people was because of the wish of the patient. That was 
So that was their main motivation. So the people with HIV, if we look on the left, their reason for switching, they had a lot of different reasons. And the, the key reason was they were interested in an option that's more convenient. So it was mainly based on convenience and tired of taking treatments every day. Interestingly, the third one was that the healthcare professional recommends it, but the healthcare recommends, recommends it said that they, that the main reason that they did it was because, you know, that the, the healthcare, the health, healthcare professional uh, said that the patient wish was the most important thing to them. And then the patient said that the healthcare provider's wish was the third most important thing to them. So if we look on the right, we see that the healthcare pro professional perspective on, on PWH, the suitability was primarily people who are tired of taking pills every day, people who feel stigmatized. So they are prioritizing people who are stigmatized and people who have anxiety over, over missing doses and people with concerns about their status disclosure. So that was their fourth most priority. Concerningly to me, the fifth most important priority was being a male person with HIV. So they clearly felt that it was easier to give this drug to men. So in terms of the carousel study, um, this is a very large European implementation study for long-acting cabotegravir piverine going on in Europe. And there are around 430 participants for people who were stably suppressed and they received an oral lead-in and then they moved on to long-acting cabotegravir or piverine. And what's important about this study in terms of this uh, data is that we are seeing the primary endpoint. We're seeing the efficacy endpoint for this trial. So 87% had viral loads less than 50 by FDA snapshot. Um, and what that amounted to was 0.7% with viral loads greater than 50. So this is a very important finding once again, because um, this is a, we're now seeing outcomes outside of the phase three trials for cabotegravirulpivirine. And what we've also seen is that the resistance and uh, non and, and the uh, efficacy figures are very similar to the clinical trials. In fact, slightly better. So what we see here is that there were two people who developed resistance. The one was a confirmed virological uh, a person who experienced confirmed virological failure, and the second was someone who was who had, was being suspected of having virological failure. Uh, and you can see the viral load at failure. And you can see that there were baseline recovery mutations uh, on in, in the first uh, participant. Uh, and then in the second participant, you can see that there were no baseline recovery mutations. So interesting finding, very similar to the clinical trials, in fact, slightly better, but certainly not worse. And I think it's interesting because it's important to remember that these findings occurred while COVID was in full swing. The participants were, many of them were enrolled and continued during COVID. So that this is a, I was very reassured to see these findings. In terms of the um, safety summary and injection site reactions, what we see here is that very similar to um, earlier, uh, earlier trials, you do see uh, and reported adverse events, but they're really grade three and they really lead to withdrawal. Injection site reactions, once again, in large proportions of people, 86% of people, 98% mild or moderate, which also fits with the trials. The median duration of the injection site reaction fits with the trials. It's three days and 82% resolved within seven days. And this is very, very similar uh, to what we have seen. 
So people withdrawing for injection site reasons, uh, there was uh, six, uh, 25 people and that's 6%. Now that is slightly higher than we normally see. We normally see about sort of two to 3%, one to, one to three percent. So in terms of lenacapavir resistance from Capella and Calibrate studies, we're now seeing uh, this poster, which basically combines the resistance uh, from uh, Capella and from the Calibrate study. And what it shows you uh, on the left is the Capella study, which is the highly treatment experience study. Uh, and what you see in terms of the primary endpoint was that 83% achieved borrow loads less than 50 by week 52 in the randomized cohort. But you'll remember that there was a randomized cohort and then there was a non-randomized cohort. And the non-randomized cohort was for people that didn't get into the randomized cohort, but were still allowed to go on to receive lenacapavir. So they didn't meet the, the, the eligibility criteria. So if we look at what we are seeing in terms of the pattern here, we are seeing the majority of the resistance occurring at week four, with, with only one occurring at week 26. And if you look at the number of fully active agents, you can see that at least three of them had no fully active agents. These would have been um, the non-randomized cohort. And in terms of reason for monotherapy, uh, reason for lack of so the reason for lenacapavir monotherapy was the lack of adherence to the opt optimized backbone uh, based on plasma concentrations. And then obviously, there were, in some people, there was no fully active antiretrovirals in the optimized backbone. So essentially, the, the take-home message is that people who didn't do well in, in the highly treatment experience study either didn't have any active antiretrovirals, so were on monotherapy, or they didn't take the, or the, 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 the uh, optimized backbone, which was, of course, oral. So they, they were not taking two injectable agents. They were taking one injectable agent plus oral therapy, and they had difficulties with the oral therapy. So that's what that, that resistance analysis is showing. On the right is the Calibrate study, and this is about looking at, uh, at first-line therapy. And what you see is that 90% and 85% uh, achieved viral loads less than 50, but there were resistance mutations that emerged in two out of 157 people. And the first participant, the PK, was on target for lenacapavir, and there was a suggestion of poor adherence to FDC and TAF uh, because resistance developed. And then uh, for the second participant, there was poor adherence by pill counts uh, in terms of the oral therapy. So in all cases, it's related to lack of other agents and, uh, or, and not taking the oral therapy. So the next thing I want to talk about was uh, the injection site reactions in Capella and Calibrate, because we haven't actually seen an analysis of injection site reactions. We're getting used to what that means in terms of cavitable piverine, but what does it mean here? So the first uh, set of uh, set of tables is basically the sorry set of uh, histograms is the incidence and severity of injection site reactions related to lenacapavir. So what you see is that no ISR is in blue, and this goes up. So the first injection, which is exactly like what we see with cavitable piverine, is the worst, and then after that. It, the reports start to go down, and we've seen that. But we've seen that in both studies. What about the duration of these events? So, if you have a swelling, that tends to go within sort of generally with within uh, four days and sort of a month. 
if you have erythema, redness, it goes very quickly. It goes with sort of minimum of two, maximum of 11 days. Pain, again, very quickly. Nodules tend to last months, weeks to months, and induration. So there were four total discontinuations due to injection site reactions, one in the Capella study and three in the Calibrate study. All were grade one. And the histopathology of the injection site reactions points to a foreign body reaction. So that's some interesting new information. In terms of the take-home messages, in the Carlos study, the most common reasons for switching were convenience and fatigue. In the carousel, it was found to be effective. ISRs reported by 86% leading to discontinuation. And then the capillary resistance occurring in Capella and Calibrate related to poor adherence or limited options. And ISRs related to lenocapavir occurring capella and calibrate, mostly mild and rarely leading to discontinuation. Now, the City of Hope patient was possibly less interesting to me um, and then to some others. Basically, it's a fourth person, the long-term remission also. Uh, is, the only difference really is that it's a 63-year-old white person, um, so older than the others, diagnosed since 1988, so diagnosed a very long time, undetectable for many years. Once again, received the CCR5 Delta 32 donor for leukemia. Um, and it was a wild type homozygous cygus 8 CCR5 receptor and received chemotherapy. And as you can see, has been undetectable now, has been negative as far as we can see for, for a very long time, 42 months. Um, so impressive, uh, response. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to cover was uh, COVID-19. So this is a study based on the WHO online platform of HCP-submitted electronic reports of hospitalizations. And the majority of the people, around 97% came from Africa, from South Africa mainly. Um, and 8% uh, of these people in terms of hospitalized COVID were people with HIV. Um, we're looking at the people with HIV by multivariable regression to determine the risk of 21-day stay in hospital mortality. What you see is that people with HIV had greater than one underlying condition uh, versus without, and that was statistically significant, and that 52 had more than had one to two underlying conditions and 7% had more than three. So there you can see uh, the risk factors for in-hospital mortality, which obviously include age, CD4 count, the viral load, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, and hypertension. In terms of the risk of in-hospital in mortality by HIV factors and differential impact by COVID variant on mortality, once, the first thing to say is that you pretty much double your risk if you have HIV, if you're living with HIV. This is regardless of your CD4 count and viral load, but if it's low, it's worse. And if you look at the effect of Delta versus Omicron, what you can see is that uh, for Delta, the outcomes were very similar in terms of mortality. For Omicron, they've gone down for people without HIV, but for people with HIV, they are statistically significantly uh, different from those without HIV, and they haven't gone down that much. So that's an important finding. But the analysis didn't account for vaccination status, which is very important, particularly in, in countries with very little access to vaccines. So um, with little ado, I'm going to open up to questions, if there are any. And I'm just trying to see if I can actually see anything. Um, no, these are modified questions. Dr. Orkin, I'll ask you a question while we wait for some to come in. 
Can you uh, speak to the Alliance study and what your thoughts are on why there may have been a difference there in TAF versus PDF and how that will affect your practice, if at all, at this point? Well, I guess it's about higher intercellular levels of tenofovir, you know, and I think, I, I guess that that might be, you know, an important uh, difference, uh, you know, the sort of lymphatic levels versus sort of cellular levels. Um, and I think that's an interesting, um, you know, in the lymphocyte versus, versus, you know, in the cell. So I think it's an interesting uh, question. It's hard to know. I mean, the only difference that you can say really is, is the, sort of the different actual concentration of the tenofovir molecule. So I think that would have to be, in my head, you know, the biggest potential difference. And I think it would just really, this, this, I think this is really a discrimination. This would push me towards using uh, TAF rather than uh, TDF and hepatitis B and using Bictegavir, FTC and TAF because you don't know. Um, it's it just, it, it worked and I would use it exactly as that. Okay, great. And were there any other studies at the conference um, that were particularly interesting to you that we didn't have a chance to talk about today? Um, I guess moving to long-acting therapy, I guess one could talk about um, the SOLA study. Um, it was not covered. And the SOLA study is a study, again, of Bactegavir, FGC, and TAF against long-acting cabotegavir or piverine. And we saw the very first out reading of this trial which was to see what healthcare providers thought about using the oral lead-in. Uh, and basically, um, it, it, it really depended on a number of things. If they were comfortable with the side effect profile, they were happy to dispense with the oral lead-in. Uh, and one of the other factors is people who, HCPs who had been in the previous trials using the oral lead-in didn't want to get rid of it. But there were quite interesting regional differences from country to country on who decided to continue with the oral lead-in and who was a, who dispensed with it because obviously now you don't have to use the oral lead-in and it was a choice. So I think that was an interesting finding um, that, you know, that there were such regional differences in, in what people would do. And I think, I mean, there was so much data that it's actually really quite hard to it's quite hard to put, put my finger on anything. Um, there was a very interesting plenary on uh, sort of disparities in prep by Patrick Sullivan. And I, I really suggest that you try and watch that on demand. It was a very, very interesting uh, presentation. And I think we're going to cover it in the, this, the clinical slide there. Yes. Thank you for that reminder. Um, for those in the audience, there will be a downloadable slide set posted that will be an expanded slide set. So it will have some additional studies that were not covered um, in the webinar today as well as what was covered today. Um, we have one last question. Were you surprised by the lack of weight gain difference in the simple HIV study between the three drug ART and dolutegravir FTC? Um, not particularly. I mean, I think it also, we don't know what the, the, the NRTI was. It just says two NRTIs and integrase inhibitors. So they were mainly 70% of them were on integrase inhibitors. So you would expect more of a difference if people switched to integrase inhibitors and away from TDF. But we don't know what the two NRTIs were. So I think with so little knowledge, it's hard to know. I, I wouldn't have sort of expected or not expected a difference. Thank you very much to Dr. Orkin. And thank you to our listeners for joining in. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. 
Thank you and have a great day. 